One of the more one of the modern miracles has been the establishment of the modern state of Israel. On May 14, 1948, uh, Israel declared its independence and became a modern state. Now, that wasn't obviously the beginning of its existence, as you know, but the fact that a nation that, for the most part, was uh, dead and gone as far as a territory, as a nation, as a people that was uh, resurrected, so to speak, has by even people who are certainly not persuaded to the Bible or Christianity or Judaism for that matter, acknowledge that that is nothing short of a miracle. There's really no natural explanation for how a tiny group of people, in comparison to other people groups around the world, twice exiled from their land, persecuted repeatedly for centuries, how that they could still be around today. In fact, uh, one of the more infamous or famous uh, quotes back in uh, the 1800s, the king of Prussia, Prussia is part of Germany now, he was asked, asked his head advisor if he could prove the existence of God, and his advisor simply replied, the Jews, sir, the Jews. And what he was saying was that the perpetual, continual existence of the Jewish people is certainly something that draws our attention to the fact of the God who called them. The Jewish people returning to their homeland, and as I said on 1948 of May 14th, uh, reestablishing themselves there in their homeland, most people look to Ezekiel 37, that prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones as a, uh, that was fulfilled by the nation being literally brought back from the dead in the existence of the nation of Israel. There's so much about Bible prophecy. Even I know we have various uh, emphases and different folks in different ways that we look at Bible prophecy, but one thing I think is consistent is that much of Bible prophecy, you can't even really understand or see how the fulfillment of Bible prophecy would take place unless there was a role for a modern state of Israel. So the state of Israel plays a prominent role in the end times. Now, that's not to say that Everything that political Israel does today, we're in agreement with, any more than everything that our country does that we're in agreement with. But the people of Israel, the Jews, the nation of Israel, I believe proves uh, that it is one of the more amazing miracles of its reestablishment, and it reminds us of the God of the Bible and the, the word that God said that when he made the promise to Abraham about Land, And he reiterated that all through the patriarchs and the prophets, that God was giving and establishing this land, that, that covenant that he made with Abraham, we call that an unconditional covenant. Those were things that God was doing, irregardless and in spite of Israel's obedience or disobedience, those were things that God was doing, and those things, I believe, that have not changed. And so we are able to, because of the new covenant of Jesus, we are, uh, as Gentiles, non-Jews, 
We are part of the promises of Abraham. We've been grafted in. The Apostle Paul uh, was accused, and even as we have been brought to this place in the book of Acts that began in chapter 21, that he was accused of being an enemy of the Jewish people, that they say that he blasphemed uh, Yahweh, that he was uh, blaspheming in the temple of God, that he was teaching against the law, and they made all these accusations. But it was the Apostle Paul that wrote in Romans 11 of how that God has not abandoned his people, uh, the Jewish people, that God has not given up on them, even though temporarily in the storyline or in the progress of redemption, God is uh, at work in the church among non-Jewish people, but that God has only done that in a temporary way, in a setting aside. And part of it, he says, is that the salvation that has been brought to the Gentiles has now been with a purpose to arouse jealousy among those covenant people. Zechariah uh, chapter 2, verse 8 speaks of Israel being the apple of his eye and gives warning about those who uh, do harm against his people and his nation. We are told in Psalm 122, verse 6, that we are to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And kind of with that as a backdrop, I want us to look at Acts chapter 28. And this morning I'm going to read just for the flow, verses 16 through 24. It will be on the screen, and you'll see in just a moment why those uh, words about uh, Israel and the Jewish people, how that fits into what uh, I believe the Lord wants us to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles or you can look on the screen, you can follow with me, Acts chapter 28, beginning at verse 16, and we're going to read verse 24. But just before we do that, remember where we looked at previous is that Paul and these prisoners were on this ship, about 275 people, and they had a shipwreck on the island of Malta. They are a part of this uh, contingency, the ship that is making its way from Jerusalem, and they're heading to Rome. But last week we looked at how that ship uh, encountered uh, destruction because of a large storm, and they found themselves temporarily on this island where God used the ministry of the Apostle Paul on this island. And uh, so now they've uh, been there for several months. Things are now back. Uh, they're able to have a vessel where they are to continue. Paul is heading to Rome. He has been under arrest, and he has said that he wants to take his case to Rome as a Roman citizen. Even though he's Jewish, he was born in Tarsus, which was a Roman territory, and he has the legal rights of a Roman citizen. And so false accusations by those in Jerusalem that, as I said, they wanted to say that he was an enemy of Israel, that he was an enemy of the temple, he had blasphemed the law, et cetera, et cetera, false charges that even the, the authorities there in Jerusalem couldn't even substantiate, but because Paul appealed to Rome to hear his case. But part of it is, is strategy, because you remember God told the apostle Paul that he would preach the gospel not just in Jerusalem, but ultimately where? In Rome. And that began the gateway of the gospel going forth throughout what we know as Europe. And we are, by and large, most of us are recipients of that gateway of going to the ends of the earth. Jesus said uh, that the power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Paul is 
uh, making way into what would be considered the ends of the earth in this time period. And Rome is his final destination. Church history, Acts 28, uh, ends kind of abruptly, but church history uh, is pretty consistent that the Apostle Paul was executed in Rome. And so we see this is Paul's final destination. With that, look with me at verse 16. And when we came into Rome, he's arrived into Rome now, the ship with all these prisoners, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I have done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined him, they wished to set him at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, he said, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, the Rome as a Roman citizen, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And when they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and neither the brothers coming here as reported or spoken any evil about you, but we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to This sect, meaning Christianity, we know that everywhere it is spoken against, which is interesting that even now in Rome they had heard of Christianity, at least some uh, information about it. Verse 23, when they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging where he was staying in great numbers. Notice, from morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Not much has changed, right? That still happens. But this morning, I want us to zero in on verse 20, something that, as I was looking at this, it just struck me, and I just couldn't get away from this phrase. Verse 20 Paul says, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you. And notice, since it is because of the hope of Israel, the hope of Israel, that I am wearing this chain. And it was that phrase, the hope of Israel, that I just kind of couldn't move from, that I, that I just saw it, and I wanted to expound on that a little bit this morning, and that's going to be our focus, the hope of Israel and to unpack that and the significance of what Paul meant by that phrase. The hope of Israel, real simply, is the hope of Messiah. Jesus, the Messiah, is the hope of Israel. Now, you notice as Paul's habit was, anywhere he traveled, and we see this all through the book of Acts, is that as he traveled, that he always met with the local Jewish brethren uh, wherever he went, just by memory, Acts chapter 17. We often think of Acts chapter 17 with that proclamation of the gospel there at the Areopagus, Mars Hill, where he was in Athens among the Greeks, and he's talking with the philosophers. But prior to that, he began in Thessalonica in chapter 17. And again, this was his habit all the way through, is he would meet with 
uh, the Jewish brethren wherever they were in their synagogues, most usually. And that was a very biblical concept because Paul would uh, write later in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, remember the phrase or the scripture where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and now you know to the rest of it, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, that the gospel was to the Jew first and then to the non-Jew, the Gentiles, the Greeks. And so the Greeks, uh, the Gentiles, that's everyone else. But God had first sent the gospel through Jesus to his people. And you remember in John 1, he came to his own, and his own what? Rejected him. They received him not. And we are now part of the covenantal blessings. We are part of the new covenant. Jesus said that in the uh, Luke's account of the, the Last Supper, he talks about the cup that is poured out for you as the new covenant in my blood. Hebrews 9 says that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. The Bible says that we are ministers of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, 6. So we are part of the new covenant where as non-Jews we are grafted in. We are brought into the family and the purpose of, of greater Israel. But this morning, let's unpack this little statement and draw some insight from the Word of God Maybe refresh ourselves around the wonderful reminder and truth of the promise of Messiah. Jesus is Messiah. He's our Messiah. And that the hopes of Israel first and the hopes of non-Jews, that we all have our hope anchored in the Messiah named Jesus. But let's pray once again as we open the Word of God. Father, we just are grateful for your holy Word. We thank you that it is given to us without flaws and errors, that it is a reliable, sure record of your will and your purpose. Let us hear your voice today through your written scripture. Let it, the word of God, minister to our hearts today, Lord, as we are, as we are pointed to, as we are encouraged concerning our only hope, and that is our hope in Jesus. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I want us to look at three things, three components of the hope of Israel, this messianic hope that Paul said, this is the reason. This is why I'm in chains. This is the reason. It's because I've come to, uh, because I'm about, uh, talking about the hope of Israel. This is why I am a prisoner is because of the hope of Israel. We want to look at the hope of Israel foretold, the hope of Israel fulfilled, and last, we'll look at the hope of Israel future. But notice, first of all, the hope of Israel foretold. Verse 23, uh, a little later down, Paul says that when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers from morning till evening. It says that he expounded to them, as he talked about the hope of Israel, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. We would kind of, in our vernacular, we would say that Paul opened the Old Testament because that was the scriptures that, that they had, was the Old Testament scriptures. This was not Paul, some novelty that Paul concocted, this idea about the gospel and the new covenant. This wasn't just some you know, thing that he invented, like Joseph Smith invented, uh, you know, the whole Mormonism myth. Uh, no, this was something that he said in Galatians 1 verse 12. He said, 
Uh, I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it. Talking about the gospel, I received it through revelation by Jesus Christ. So this foretelling of the hope of Israel, of the coming of Jesus, uh, we're reminded in Deuteronomy 18.15. Some of these won't be on the screen. I'll just say them as reference. But Moses, Moses foresaw, looked by the Holy Spirit and saw and said this, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, speaking of Jesus, from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him you shall listen. So Moses, prophetically through the Holy Spirit, looked and saw that there would be one who would be raised up, he said, who would be in a, in a, a type, or Moses rather, was a type of this deliverer. There would be ultimately a ultimate deliverer. There would be a deliverer that ultimately would deliver you from the greatest of bondages, not Egypt, the greatest of bondages, and is the bondage of our sin. But the messianic hope actually uh, was foretold before Moses. And uh, I'll point you back to Genesis chapter 3, some maybe some familiar verses that we see even here in mankind, humankind's darkest hour of rebellion against God, we see a glimpse, a, a snapshot, a preview of coming attractions. And I'll begin at verse 10 of Genesis chapter 3. And it says then we pick up kind of midway here that in verse 8, it talks about how the Lord God and, his, uh, and how the man, Adam and Eve, that heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And it says that because of their sin, they hid from the Lord. They hid from him among the trees of the garden. Have you ever tried to hide from God? How does that work out for you? It doesn't work out too good. He's... But we'll look down to verse 10, and so that we pick it up kind of midway. And he answered, and Adam said, I heard you in the garden speaking to the Lord. I'm reading from the NIV here. He answered and he said, I heard you in the garden speaking to the Lord, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And the Lord said to them, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman, the woman, she's the blame. She's the reason. This woman, notice he says, not only this woman, but the woman you put here, God. So I'm really kind of putting it back on you. But he says, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent, everybody's blaming somebody, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And now to look at this carefully, verse 14, how the Lord, Yahweh, is focusing now in this curse, he said to the serpent, which was just a manifestation of Satan, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will, draw, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. But verse 15 is where we want to draw attention to. And the Lord says, in the midst of this curse, he said, and I will put enmity, that's hostility, bad blood, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring, the woman, uh, between Satan, your offspring, and hers. And notice what it says about her offspring. Again, looking future, he will crush, this offspring will crush your head, and you will strike 
his heel. Now, again, I, I, don't, I recognize that may be a little difficult on face value, and sometimes a, a helpful note is important. If you uh, have uh, John MacArthur's study Bible, he has a helpful brief note uh, there that uh, he says and reminds us that in verse 15, we see a snapshot, a preview of coming attractions that we could easily call the first gospel, the first little prophetic hint that God was going to bring forth one who would be the one who would redeem those under the curse. He said that, that this one, prophetically speaking, uh, and its outcome between your seed, Satan and unbelievers, who were called the, Jesus said in John 8, 44, he calls them the children of the devil, that seed, he says, between your seed and her seed, you see that differentiation there, between her seed, which is Messiah, Christ, a descendant of Eve, and those in him which began in the garden. In other words, in the midst of the curse, of God's curse, in the midst of this, there is a message of hope that God brings, the hope that Paul would identify as the hope of Israel. It's a message of hope that is shining forth between the offspring of the woman who would be the Messiah who will one day defeat the serpent. He says the uh, speaking to the curse to the serpent, uh, you will strike his heel. In other words, you will wound him. He will suffer, but he will do something greater to you. What will he do? He will crush your head. The hope of Israel foretold. Setting up, Genesis 3.15, setting up the grand story of God's redemptive purpose that runs from Genesis all the way through Revelation. You could, in a way, summarize the Old Testament storyline that God sovereignly purposed this way. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the prophecy. God will provide a lamb for the sacrifice. God's people will have a land. They will become a nation. They will become a kingdom to live in. That kingdom will be ruled by someone sitting on David's everlasting throne. Israel, as a nation, will be a source of blessing to the entire world. That is what God's purpose and plan is. Jesus said this in, in talking about the importance of the foretelling of the Old Testament and how that everything foretold and pictured his coming in Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 27. It says, and remember this is the resurrected Jesus. Uh, he's on the road to Emmaus. He encounters a couple of disciples leaving Jerusalem. And just in the middle of this, he makes this statement, or, the, or Luke, the author, in recounting this, says, and, and Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That sounds like what Paul said in, in, earlier in verse 23, that Moses and all the prophets. In other words, the Old Testament, he beginning with Moses, the first five books and the prophets, again, just shorthand for the Old Testament terms, Jesus interpreted to them or showed them in all the scriptures what? The things concerning... So who is the hero of the Old Testament? Jesus. Who's the hero of the new? Jesus. Who's the hero of the Bible? It's Jesus. He is front and center. We get sidetracked between Abraham, Isaac, and Jonah, and a whale, and all these in between, and all of those are just props 
of the stage that are setting the stage for the hope of Israel, the Messiah. I love the fact of how Jesus reminds us of how he's the theme of the Old Testament and how every Old Testament book has the theme of Christ. In Genesis, he's portrayed as the seed of the woman. Exodus, the Passover lamb. Leviticus, the high priest. Numbers, water in the desert. Deuteronomy, he becomes the curse for us. Joshua, he's the commander of the army of the Lord. Judges, delivers us from injustice. Ruth, our kinsman redeemer. First Samuel, all in one, prophet, priest, and king. Second Samuel, king of grace and king of love. First Kings, a ruler greater than Solomon. Second Kings, the powerful prophet. First Chronicles, son of David that is coming to rule. Second Chronicles, the king who reigns eternally. Ezra, the priest who proclaims freedom. Nehemiah, the one who restores what is broken down. Esther, the protector of his people. Job, mediator between God and man. Psalms, our song in the morning and in the night. Proverbs, our wisdom. Ecclesiastes, our meaning for life. Song of Solomon, author of faithful love. Isaiah, suffering servant. Jeremiah, the weeping Messiah. Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. Ezekiel, son of man. Daniel, the stranger, the third man, in the, the fourth man in the fire with us. Hosea, faithful husband, even when we run away. Joel, he is sending his spirit to his people. Amos, delivers, us, delivers justice to the oppressed. Obadiah, judge of those who do evil. Jonah, the greatest missionary seeking the lost. Micah, he casts our sea, sins into the sea of forgetfulness. Nahum, proclaims future world peace that we cannot even imagine. Habakkuk crushes injustice. Zephaniah, the warrior who saves. Haggai restores our worship. Zechariah prophesies a Messiah pierced for us. Malachi, son of righteousness who brings healing. Jesus is the theme of the Word of God. Amen. Amen. So we see the hope foretold, but notice with me, secondly, the hope of Israel fulfilled. Fulfilled. Jesus said in Matthew 1, and this is as you read the Gospels, especially uh, the three, what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but especially Matthew, because Matthew's audience is a Jewish audience, as you see him continually writing and saying how this was done that this scripture would be fulfilled. This was done that this would be fulfilled. This was done that this would be fulfilled, showing and linking to Matthew's Jewish audience that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament prophetic scripture. One example in Matthew 1, verse 20 through 23, Jesus says, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel, actually this is at the very beginning, uh, which isn't too far away. Well, these are verses that we'll hear uh, about usually in December, but we don't have to wait till December to uh, talk about them. And so the Bible says, but as he considered these things, Joseph, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, the earthly stepfather of Jesus, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 22, 
All this took place to do what? To fulfill what the Lord had spoken. You see, the Scriptures testify that Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, the literal prophecies that all testified. Again, he opened up the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and the prophets, and showed those disciples that were downcast in Luke 24 all those things concerning himself. Now, listen, I'd buy the DVDs to that teaching, wouldn't you? I'd want to be there. Maybe someday we'll get to hear that uh, in the presence of the Lord. Imagine him just walking us through Genesis, X, all those things, and saying, See, here I am, here I am, you know, and pointing us all those things. That's why it's kind of amazing when, when um, you know, these shepherds and these ones came into Jerusalem and they were inquiring about the birth of this king because their calculations, they surmised that it was about the time and based upon, again, if you study the history going back to Daniel, and the religious folks, and of course Herod was paranoid about anybody challenging his throne, and he heard that there's a king, he wanted to... He was, all of a sudden, he was real interested. But the people that should have known the most about the coming of, the, of Jesus and his birth should have been the ones that were the uh, guardians of the Word of God in that period, but they were kind of indifferent. It was these unlikely ones, not even Jews by ethnicity or birth, that came looking for the Messiah. Don't be surprised that the people that are the most desirous and seeking after Messiah ain't the church folks. Have you found that to be true? It's people that perhaps in our prejudice and arrogance we've written off that Jesus, that's why Jesus always found company among the poor versus the elite and the rich. The hope of Israel is fulfilled in Scripture multiple references. Even I, I was thinking about in, in, uh, when Jesus came to his hometown, hometown, Luke records this in Luke chapter 4. He came to his hometown of Nazareth, and remember he was in the synagogue, and he walked up to do a reading from the synagogue, and he opened the scroll to Isaiah chapter 61. And as he began reading, he, or before he began reading, or afterwards, I'm sorry, as he read Isaiah 61, he concluded by saying... Uh, or he actually began, forgive me. Today, he says, right before he opened up Isaiah 61, he began by saying, today, today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, that was a pretty bold thing to do, right? Imagine what kind of response would I say, well, turn over to Psalms 22. Hey, that was about me. Sean and Jim couldn't get up here fast enough, and maybe Billy Ray and... Uh, you know, you think, well, he's lost his mind. Jesus, imagine, and if you see what happened there, when Jesus, because first of all, he went into his hometown. You know, the, you know, Jesus even acknowledged a prophet has no honor in his own country. And if you read what took place, they were angry and mad. But Jesus, what was he doing? He was demonstrating that he, the hope of Israel, had fulfilled the Scripture. And he said, Today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine the impact that that was. The hope of Israel. Even when Simeon, when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into the temple, they encountered a man by the name of Simeon that Luke 2.25 said, 
that he was a man who was righteous and devout. And it says that he was waiting, I love this, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Isn't that a great phrase? He was waiting for the hope of Israel. Only one person has fulfilled all Old Testament messianic prophecies, and that's Jesus. In Josh McDowell's uh, book, uh, I've had quite a long time, and it's a multiple printings and should be a part of your library. It's very helpful. Is evidence that demands a verdict. So many information, so much in there. But uh, in this, he talks about how the Bible's Old Testament. The reason it's such a value and importance for believers is because it contains an estimate over 300 predictive prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah, coming of Jesus. Uh, These are like threads of a tapestry that show the messianic credentials of Jesus. A lot of people, even Gamaliel, remember he in the book of Acts, he even acknowledged, look, there's been a lot of people that come through claiming to be prophets and Messiah, and they died off. Remember he told that to the other Pharisees, and if this movement is of God, there's nothing you're going to be able to do to stop it if, if it's of God. And so there's been multi, just like in our day, there's always people that come along making claims, but it's only Christ who fulfilled all these prophetic uh, promises and predictions. The Old Testament, you can almost say, is like an intricate jigsaw puzzle that where the numerous pieces on their own don't make any sense. But until they are assembled enough that they begin to fill out the picture, the intended picture, and this is why the New Testament provides such an important role as like a decryption key that unfolds what is perhaps in shadows and types in the Old Testament. All of a sudden, when we get to the New Testament and Jesus begins to reveal those things concerning himself in books like Hebrews and Paul, it's all of a sudden, it's like this, this dim room. I said this illustration Wednesday. It's like this dim room. We can make out something on the mantle. We can make out some pictures. We can make out some furniture. But we really can't see very clearly until all the lights are turned on and the curtains fling open and the light comes in. We see detail and colors and we see things in much brighter array than we could see before. And Jesus and the revelation of him in the New Testament does this. Some say that Old Testament prophecy, well, maybe some people you can tag their name into maybe fulfilling some of these in a general sense, but really that's just, that's just an excuse for ignoring the fact of Jesus fulfilling not just one or two general prophecies, but Jesus being the fulfillment of all these messianic prophecies that are recorded in the Old Testament. Only Jesus fulfilled this. In Josh McDowell's book, he quotes an author by the name of Peter Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks. And Peter Stoner uh, made this calculation, should be on the screen, I have the quote. He says this, he said, calculated the chance of any man, any person fulfilling these numerous prophecies, even down to the present time, would be one, and there's just, it's 10 to the 17th power. That's one with 17 zeros. I don't even know what you call that. That's how astronomically impossible it would be for someone to fulfill the prophetic record that Jesus 
fulfilled perfectly. Jesus is the one. Jesus was the one. The hope of Israel that the Bible foretold in Scripture, that fulfilled Scripture. And thirdly, the hope of Israel future. The hope of Israel future. There is a return in regards to this hope of Israel. Titus 2.13. Titus 2.13 says that we are waiting for our blessed what? Our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our blessed hope. Sometimes as a church, not just our church, but you know, we kind of fall into that trap where we don't talk too much about the return of Jesus Christ. But yet the Bible is filled with the testimony of his return. And like if we had a powerful telescope, uh, the Bible is focused around one central theme. Beginning at Jesus, or beginning at Genesis, rather, everything in Scripture moves along in pointing and fulfilling this one theme, this one person, and that is Christ. It is to fulfill and establish that Jesus Christ is the rightful ruler over all of God's creation. Listen, God did not abandon his creation because of the fall of mankind in Genesis 3. He didn't just throw up his hands and say, well, that was a nice try. I guess I'll have to go do something else. I'll go have to go off in some other uh, you know, planetary system or some other area and start over. No, he didn't abandon anything because God has never relinquished control over that which he has made. And from the very beginning, the Bible has focused singularly, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, upon Jesus Christ and the story of God's redemption all along the way, whether the writers of Scripture They've been writing, whether they wrote generally in detail, whether they knew, whether they didn't know in, in some cases, what we call today, uh, that we see it as what we refer to as the end times, the end times. Writers, Peter says in 2 Peter 1.21, were moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, they were carried along that the Holy Spirit was orchestrating and recording this plan of redemption and culminating in the coming of Jesus Christ. The writers of Scripture, under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, were carrying out the will of God and what they recorded and what they wrote. They were preparing. See, the reason it's so wonderful in this, this council, this book we call the Word of God, the Bible, is it prepares us. It prepares our hearts to receive Christ. It prepares us as we anticipate the return of Christ. And the climax of human history is not going to be next November's election. The climax of world history is when Jesus returns to do physically what he is already doing from heaven and as to rule over this world literally from his throne in Jerusalem. I take that literally. You know why I take that literally? Because, and you've heard me say this before, and you've heard others say it before. That if all of these predictive prophecies of the Old Testament were fulfilled literally, then why would we think that the predictive prophecies concerning his second coming are going to be anything other than literal? 
right? Now, there is nuances and aspects that we may not understand, and that's why Christians, but there's one thing that there's a core agreement upon people that love Christ, love his word, is that Jesus is coming back. We are in total lockstep agreement with that. You remember in Acts 1, and don't panic, we're not going to go back to Acts 1. (laughs) Tempted, but we're not. But you remember when Jesus, right before the very eyes of these disciples, that he, we refer to it as the ascension, that right before their eyes, he was bodily, this is resurrected, nay, he was bodily lifted up and ascended into heaven. And these uh, two men dressed in white stood beside them, and they said, men of Galilee, why are you gazing, looking into the sky? And don't miss this language. This same Jesus... Not some figment of somebody's dream and imagination. Not somebody born on the mountains of North Korea. Not somebody down in Brazil. This same physical bodily Jesus that in the same way you saw him go up, in this same way he will descend and come back. That could not be any clearer. Acts chapter 1 verse 11. He will come back in the same way as you have seen him go into heaven. So what? think with me that what God started and put in motion in Genesis 3.15 in the first chapter of the Word of God is culminated in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Word of God, where Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He reigns as king. And when Jesus said on the cross, mission accomplished, to paraphrase, it was accomplished. It was done. You know, sometimes we think, well, it just doesn't seem that way. You know, when any, thinking about the allies in World War II or even the American forces uh, in Iraq and different places, that even after the surrender occurred, There were still skirmishes and occupying forces that were taking dominion in these territories. But for all practical purposes, the enemy was defeated. The enemy was defeated, and the victorious forces were making that as they took dominion over what has been accomplished. Jesus reminds us in Matthew 24, probably one of the most prophetic chapters of the Gospels, where Jesus speaks quite a bit about the second coming, and there's so many, it might be in itself a a, a series that we might want to unpack sometime. But Matthew 24, verse 36, Jesus says, but concerning that day, that day, meaning that day of his physical, literal, bodily return, concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Remember in Acts 1, the disciples finally had Jesus, you know, tell us now. When this is restored, now tell us now. We got you all to ourselves. Tell us now. And the New Living International Message Standard Version says, it's none of your business. Only the Father has fixed this time. We have a job even though we... So Jesus, concerning that day, no one knows. Don't buy any paperback books. 
with 88 reasons why Jesus, you remember that? Anybody? I don't know. I don't want to know if you bought it. I don't, I don't even want to know. Hopefully you throw it away with all your Y2K library. Uh, I'm already starting on Y3K. I'm already kind of going to, I'm going to get in, I'm going to have my grandchildren get in earlier, great-grandchildren probably. Uh, but, you know, we get suckered into this stuff where somebody's got it down. Here's the day or the hour. But Jesus says, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. And Jesus said in kind of a little confusing, but it's differentiating between his humanity and divinity, he says, not even the Son, but the Father only. It's a mystery. We don't quite figure out, but he says, not even the Son, but the Father alone. Verse 37, for as were the days of Noah, it'd be helpful to know what the days of Noah were, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, the days of Noah before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. In other words, everything just seemed to be a continuum without any interruption. And, you know, they're really this whole talk about judgment. And remember Noah? How many, I don't have, you know, how many years did he preach and tell them to repent? And God was going to bring judgment. And every day just seemed like it unfolded to the next day. Everything is still until one day. I just kind of have a little sanctified imagination. What's that on my forehead? Where'd that water come from? They never seen Raymond. You know, and they're beginning to like, what's going on here? And all of a sudden, that craziness that Noah had been talking about couldn't get or tried to get. But the Bible says that with that ark, there was a time when the Bible says that God shut the door. The time of opportunity was over. Verse 39, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. He says, so will be the coming, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He said, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, what does he say to those who are listening? Stay awake. That's a good, that's a good phrase to have emblazoned on Sunday morning behind me. Stay awake. I'm just kidding. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. You see, the promise is intended to be a promise of hope. This is what Paul picked up on in 1 Thessalonians. He said, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So then, verse 6, let us, believers, not sleep. Talking about spiritually, obviously, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Let us pay attention and be people who are looking and anticipating his return. Now, the reality is, is that some of us, you know, every generation really since Jesus ascended has anticipated and believed that they were living in the last days. Every generation. There's, there's maybe some of you feel like, you know, I believe maybe, you know, we'll see the coming of the Lord. And I think that's, that's a good thing. I think that's a God thing. There's that anticipation of maybe my generation. We don't know. We don't know the hour, the time. 
But if that is not the case, it does not deter the future hope that is for the believer. While we may not see the literal return, there is a future reception for the believer that we will be received by Christ as our eternal hope should we die before that second coming. The Bible says in Psalm 116, verse 15, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. There's a future reception for the people of God. The Bible teaches that when believers die, they immediately are taken into the presence of Christ in heaven. If you were with us when we did that summer study on heaven, you understood the difference between what, uh, remember Chip Ingram did that study, some of you are doing your home group, I think that same study, and he talked about the intermediate state, that's that, that in-between, because there's this in-between of now and when Jesus returns, when there will be a new heaven, a new earth with him uh, establishing his authority upon the earth, but it, we're in the in-between right now, and that we are when we die as believers, the Bible says that we are immediately taken into the presence of, of, of Christ who is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven now, and when believers die, they go into the presence of, to be with him. Remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, it's interesting, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, when he anticipates being ushered into the presence of Christ, I love what he says in Philippians 1. He says in Philippians 1, verse 23 and 24, he says, I am hard-pressed between the two. Talking about this life and the life to come. He says, my desire, if you ask me what I really want, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ because he says what? For that is what? And it is. It's far better. That's not some morbid death wish. She's just saying it is far better to be with Christ for eternity, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. And then he would say in 2 Corinthians 5 something also interesting about being ushered into the presence of Christ. He says, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home, at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. I think more traditional is to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. That's why the Bible does not teach reincarnation. Sorry, Shirley McLean. It doesn't teach reincarnation. There's not second and third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. No, to be absent, to those who die and are absent from the body, they are present with the Lord as believers. Death is the immediate entrance into the presence of Corinthians 1. He says, and I love this, he says, to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, the ESV says, is to be home with the Lord. Now, I tell you, that, that's comfort because you may have never felt like you had a home on this planet. You never really felt like, oh, you had, a, you had a house, you had stuff. But there is part of that that every child of God, I think, is hardwired as, as, as new creations 
that as much as we want to kind of settle down, put our feet up on the, the railing and stare out over the mountains and, you know, just, it never, never is satisfying because we are never, ever, ever intended for this life to be home. Home for the Christian, home for the believer is to be with the Lord. Death is a separation of body and soul. It does not end our personhood. Our souls reside and go into the presence of the glory and are, separate, are, are together with Christ. But if we are not, and Jesus spoke quite a bit, yes, he spoke about hell quite a bit, that if we are not present with the Lord as his believers, the Bible says that those who reject him that we will spend eternity in eternal separation that the Bible calls hell. That's the testimony of Scripture. So the Bible says that there is a future for our hope. Where is your hope today, I ask? Where's your hope? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Politicians, pastors, churches, they're all disappoint you. We will all fail. Jesus never fails. He is the one that is foretold. He is the one that Scripture identifies as the one who has fulfilled. He's the one who has a future coming. But while this isn't part of my outline this morning, I had a final F. He's the one who has finished what God sent him to do. And if he has finished it, you don't have to. If he has finished and accomplished reconciling lost men and women who the Bible says that while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. That what he has finished, quit trying to add to it. Receive his grace, receive his mercy, receive and thank him for the completed, finished work. And like Paul was saying, I do all this, I'm in the chains for the hope of Israel, Paul would also remind us in Galatians 3, when he wrote and said, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all, what, one in Christ Jesus. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. We are on that down line of that hope of Israel. Thankful for what God set in motion in Galatians and Genesis 3, he finished with Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith.